This is Shelley Welton here with the Energy Trade-Offs Project, and I'm joined today by Mike Gerard, who is the Andrew Sabin Professor on Professional Practice at Columbia Law School, where he also teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and he founded and is the director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. So welcome, Mike, and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Shelley. Good to be with you. So we're here today to discuss Mike's article, Legal Pathways for a Massive Increase in Utility-Scale Renewable Generation Capacity, which is published in the Environmental Law Reporter, and it also forms part of a larger book project on deep decarbonization that Mike has been helping to lead. And I thought I'd get you to start by just describing how this particular project that we're talking about today fits into this larger effort uh, on deep decarbonization. About five years ago, the Sustainable Development Solutions Network and a group called IDRI in Paris uh, led a project called Pathways to Deep Decarbonization, where they put together technical pathways for the 15 largest emitting countries in the world. Uh, Professor John Dernbach of uh, Widener Law School and I uh, then uh, asked the question, how does U.S. law need to change in order for the U.S. to be on that pathway? So over the last three and a half years, we worked on editing a volume called Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States. It was published by the Environmental Law Institute in April of 2019, 35 chapters by about 50 um, uh, experts, mostly law professors, but some others uh, with a total of about 1,500 recommendations for federal, state, and local action. So the, this chapter that we're going to be, this article we're talking about was the chapter from that book about utility-scale renewables. Great. Well, I'm, I'm excited in particular to talk about this chapter because I think it's great for the trade-off series. It really gets it some of the major obstacles that stand in the way of domestic progress on citing the scale of large utility renewables that we need in the United States. Uh, and I wonder if you could first just contextualize for our listeners the scale of a resource build-out that we're talking about. So how many renewables do we need, and how does this compare to what we've built so far? So in the first place, um, other aspects of deep decarbonization are electrifying the entire uh, motor vehicle fleet and much of the rest of the transport sector, electrifying a lot of home heating and cooling and water heating and so forth. And when you do all of that, you need to about double the amount of electricity generated in the United States. At the same time, we have to phase out all the coal and uh, that generates electricity and uh, be phasing out most of the natural gas and replacing it with uh, zero emissions uh, electricity. So it means that uh, we're going to need to be building every year several times as much renewable generation capacity as we have ever built in the peak year for uh, onshore wind, uh, for offshore, uh, for, for solar, and obviously, and we have almost no offshore wind in the U.S., just one small plant, and we're going to need a very massive build out of that. So, it, so it's really an enormous increase and capacity that's going to be needed. So you focus in the article on four different challenges that this build-out of utility-scale renewables faces. And I thought we would start by talking about your discussion of site acquisition and approval. And the first thing you talk about in the piece is why siting on federal lands and in offshore federal waters where wind is going to need to go, you talk about why it's hard. 
which in some ways I think feels counterintuitive to a lot of people because it seems like the federal government should just easily be able to open up whatever land it wants to. So why can't the federal government just decide what it wants to build and authorize it? Why is it proven more difficult? Well, in the first place, if it's federal land, it's all subject to the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, and that involves intricate processes that are um, that often take a long time. It's also subject to the uh, Endangered Species Act, um, sometimes the National Historic Preservation Act. And uh, apart from that, the Bureau of Land Management, which has the you know jurisdiction over most of the land, and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which has jurisdiction over the offshore uh, areas, uh, as well as the U.S. Forest Service, which has some of the land, all have intricate planning processes, um, and so they can't just snap, make a decision, and uh, and and move forward on the drop of a dime. So. One alternative you talk about in the piece to citing on federal land, which does face all of these um, statutory and administrative obstacles, is to use contaminated lands as a potential site for putting renewable energy projects on. And you know in the piece these seem like a really good place to put renewables. So can you talk a little bit about why this isn't happening at the scale that it needs to? Because of the liability scheme under the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, anybody who engages in an activity on contaminated land is going to have concern that they may be liable uh, for the cleanup of it. And so that's the reason for the brownfields phenomenon, and it's the reason why a lot of renewable developers have been shy about working on contaminated land. EPA has been trying to fix that. They have uh, uh, people who are trying to expedite the process, but this liability concern is a real one, and it slows down renewable developers, and even more so it it slows down um, financial institutions, which have uh, developed a real aversion to do, doing anything that smacks of uh, site contamination. Mm-hmm. So I think you're getting at one of the questions that I have in your discussion of EPA there, which is there are several ways we could amend all of these planning laws and these liability laws to facilitate more large-scale renewable siting. And so my question is, why do you think these changes haven't caught on yet? What, what are the impediments holding us back from doing the law reform that we need? Well, in the first place, to the extent we're talking about federal statutory changes, as you know, Congress has not enacted a major new environmental statute since 1990, the year of the Oil Pollution Act and the Clean Air Amendments. Uh, they've only uh, uh, there have been a few amendments that there was there were there were amendments to the Toxic Substances Control Act, but for the most part, Congress has been paralyzed on on environmental issues, and that. Uh, yawning partisan divide has only gotten worse over the years. Uh, To the extent that this can be done administratively, um, uh, the Obama administration did a lot to uh, try to speed this up, both um, EPA and the Department of the uh, Interior, uh, after a notable lack of enthusiasm by the George W. Bush administration. The Trump administration is trying to reverse all of that. So we, we don't have a consistency of administrative enthusiasm for using the statutory tools that already exist. But a new administration could presumably pick back up and expedite some of the Obama-era actions if it's so desired. Yes, and absolutely we hope that's what what happens. So 
I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about uh, NEPA and the Endangered Species Act, which you brought up at the beginning. Because a, a, a large part of your piece talks about the ways that these you know, environmental statutes can, can really slow down renewable siting. And I got the sense reading the piece that you were pretty impatient with environmentalists and the way that these federal statutes hold up renewable energy development on the grounds of either endangered species impacts or some other kind of more localized environmental impact. So first I just thought I'd ask, am I, am I right? Are you frustrated with NEPA and the ESA in this context? Yes. Um, we are facing literally an existential threat. We're facing the greatest environmental threat that has ever occurred. Uh, one absolutely essential element of addressing that threat is this massive increase in renewable energy. Um, and no, uh, no energy facility of any kind has zero environmental impacts. Um, but we, we have to accept that we, we need to minimize the impacts to the extent we can, but we're going to have to move forward. Um, and so if it takes uh, five or ten years to get the approval for a utility-scale solar or wind project, that is completely inconsistent with the pace at which we need to be moving in order to seriously address the climate pro uh, problem. And so there are statutory tools that uh, allow us to do a lot of that. And I think it is very, very negative and unfortunate when some groups uh, stand in the way because of particular relatively minor site-specific impacts that one of these projects may have. And would that require statutory amendment in order to expedite these kinds of approvals, or could that also be done at an administrative level? A lot of it can be done at an administrative level, and we've already seen that. Um, the Bureau of Land Management launched something called the Western Solar Project, which was a programmatic environmental impact statement for solar projects over uh, several states over the West. Um, they did the programmatic EIS and then specific solar projects that fit within that large geographic area were able to move forward quite quickly with just a little bit of supplemental environmental analysis. That was done under existing statutes and it can absolutely be replicated. So let's talk finally about the last hurdle that you discussed in the article, which is state and local government approvals. And you suggest here that some states are pretty good at getting large renewables approved with relative speed, and others have really acted as impediments here. Um, so I thought I'd first just get you to talk a little bit about which states you think are doing a good job and what it means to do a good job in this context. So the two states that have the largest amount of operating wind capacity are Texas and Iowa. And obviously, neither of those was driven by ideological fervor to fight climate change, but they concluded that um, it made good sense economically for them to have this cheap source of electricity, and the owners of farms and ranches and so forth when the, where the wind farms would go loved it because they would get income. So uh, so Texas actually pre-built the transmission lines, the transmission network, in order to be able to bring the electricity from uh, where it was generated to uh, to load, and uh, they've had a uh, both states have municipalities that have tended to be happy with these projects, and so they haven't gotten in the way. In contrast, my state, New York, which purports to like renewables, you actually have a whole lot of delays uh, at the local level by 
communities that um, that don't want these facilities. One of the things to address that is the the group I run at Columbia, the Saban Center for Climate Change Law, has started up something called the Renewable Energy Legal Defense Initiative, whose purpose is to provide pro bono legal representation to uh, community groups and others who want wind and solar and associated transmission and storage, but that are facing local opposition. But there's a lot more that needs to be done to speed up the process. Interesting. And so is taking some power out of the hands of localities an answer here? Well, I think a very good model is the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which had the purpose of expediting the approval of cell phone towers and those other kinds of facilities. And so they did not take away local authority over uh, cell phone towers, but they constrained it. Uh, they uh, they set a time frame uh, for the approval. They said that projects could not be banned locally because of electromagnetic frequency radiation. It was up to the FCC to decide what the permissible levels uh, of that were. And it created a federal right of action so that if a municipality was unduly holding up a project, the developers could go to federal court. That has been remarkably effective and has led to a massive increase in cell phone towers, which is what its purpose was. I think something along those lines could well uh, be very effective for renewables. And would that be a federal statute or would that be a state-by-state kind of decision? Ideally, it would be a federal statute. Um, Failing that, states could do it, but ideally it would be federal. Um, Okay, well, any other final thoughts that you have for us on the trade-offs involved in getting large-scale renewables cited that you think our listeners should be keeping in mind that I haven't asked about? I I think it's essential to realize that there are no zero-impact solutions, that anything you want to do uh, um, is going to have some impact. You're going to have to be mining the minerals and, 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 and putting up transmission lines and so forth, but that the magnitude of the climate challenge is such that we have to accept those trade-offs. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Shelley.